All right, let's go ahead and get started. We're maybe a minute early here, but uh, people can trickle in if they wish. Uh, this is a workshop on financial planning for pastors, future pastors, and students who would like to be less poor. And whatever, you may not fall into that any of those categories, but you get the idea. I do want to start with a disclaimer. Uh, I confess I am neither a certified financial planner nor a CPA. This workshop is for informational purposes only. It does not constitute tax or legal advice. Every person's situation is different. This workshop does not take into account your specific situation. So having given that disclaimer, maybe you want to leave, uh, but why, why am I offering this workshop on this topic? Why am I doing a workshop on financial planning for pastors, etc.? Well, to be honest, financial planning is kind of a hobby of mine. Um, I started reading Larry Burkett and Ron Blue when I was about 16. And then through college, started reading on the stock market and really just never dropped the, the hobby. Uh, it was a profitable hobby in general. And so it's something I'm really interested in. Some people keep track of batting averages and last night's score or whatever. And I am much more inclined to keep track of how companies are doing, um, uh, stock symbols, P ratios, dividend yields, all that kind of stuff. That's just the kind of stuff that interests me a lot more than athletes. Um, in general, people like to talk about sports. I'd rather actually talk about how to manage a real estate transaction so as to reduce tax liability or when to roll a cash-secured put, um, which I might be speaking French at this point or something. Um, I don't actually know anybody who plays on the Lions. So anyway, this is a topic that, or the Red Wings for that matter. Uh, that's, those things just don't interest me, but this does. And so that's actually, uh, it's honestly just part of the reason uh, for the topic. As well, over the years, I've interacted with a good number of students and more than a few pastors who have indicated, intentionally or not, that money management is actually a struggle for them. That this is something that they don't really have a grip on and need to work on. And yet pastors are responsible to be good managers of their households, and that would certainly include their household resources. So why this, why this topic? Well, everyone is a steward. If I can paraphrase Charles Ryrie's famous statement about everyone being a theologian, stewardship is for everyone. Indeed, everyone needs to be a steward. In reality, everyone is a steward of one sort or another. And therein, uh, therein lies the problem. There's nothing wrong with being an amateur steward or professional steward, but there's everything wrong with being an ignorant or sloppy steward. Therefore, everyone should learn about good stewardship. So this workshop is about seeking to be a good steward of the resources that God has entrusted to us. And financial planning is basically intentional stewardship. And as such, I think it involves three main things or concepts. First, figuring out where you are, where are you right now, figuring out where you want to be in the future, and then figuring out how to get there. You know, our phones are amazing things. They can tell us how to get all over the country. We used to have to have these big atlases. Some of you don't remember this, some of you do. Driving across the country with a big atlas on your lap or admittedly sometimes in front of the steering wheel. All right, our phones only are as good though. Uh, they only really work when they know where we are as far as GPS is concerned. If our phones don't know where we are, they really can't tell us how to get somewhere. And if we don't tell them where we want to go, they're not going to help us very much either. So we need to input or GPS locates where we are, tell them where we want to go, and then it provides routes to get there, routes to get there, depending on what part of the country you're from. Um, so where you are, where you want to be in the future and how to get there. The big idea of this workshop is you must spend less than you make and then invest the difference in assets that tend to appreciate 
and produce cash flow. I'll say that again, it includes multiple parts that we'll kind of flesh out as we go through the notes. You must spend less than you make and then invest the difference in assets that tend to appreciate and produce cash flow. If you do this for a long time, you're almost guaranteed to be financially stable and able to provide for your family and share generously with others. Now, I'm actually not going to address the topic of giving this morning. I'll mention it in passing probably once or twice, but that's not the theme of this workshop. That is kind of a sermon for another day, perhaps literally. Um, but we will talk about our personal finances and how to ultimately improve them, in part because it is very difficult to give if you're living paycheck to paycheck. If you're struggling to pay your bills, it's very hard to be a generous giver. And some of the stuff we'll cover actually makes it easier to give as time goes on. All right, first, let's figure out where we are. Analyze your current situation. In terms of personal finances, assessing your situation involves two main activities, determining your net worth and then evaluating your cash flow situation. So first, determine your net worth. Maybe you've done this. Maybe you have a number in your head. Maybe you don't. Maybe you've never done this. All right, your net worth is simply the total of your assets minus your liabilities expressed in the little formula there. Assets are what you own, things like real estate or vehicles, bank accounts, investment accounts, things that could ultimately be turned into cash assets. Liabilities are what you owe. That can include mortgages, car loans, student loans, credit card balances, anything you owe to someone else. To determine your net worth, you add up all of your assets, then you add up all of your liabilities, and finally you subtract your liabilities from your assets, and that's your net worth. This difference is your net worth. Now, it's actually possible to have a net worth that is negative. In fact, probably a lot of people coming out of college are in this boat. They come out of college and they have student loans, but they don't really have assets. And so they actually have a negative net worth. Your net worth over the course of your lifetime will be constantly changing, sometimes literally daily, at least on weekdays. Um, your net worth will be changing constantly, but hopefully it's increasing over time. You can keep track of your net worth in a spreadsheet. Uh, Excel or Google Sheets or something, or you can actually just figure it out on the back of a napkin, perhaps, if it's, things are fairly simple. But if you're going to plan for the future, you need to start by knowing your approximate net worth. I'd suggest keeping track of your net worth in a spreadsheet. Um, we do this. I've done this for 20 years, probably. Um, in a spreadsheet, you can update things on a regular basis. I do it monthly, at least. Um, what you can do is you can have categories like taxable accounts, uh, retirement accounts, and then things like real estate if you own a home. And then liabilities could fit in here somewhere. Liabilities down here would be mortgages that you subtract from real estate value. Up here, you'd have liabilities, other debts you might have. Bill it. Um, so keep track of this in a spreadsheet. I review this with my wife. We can print this out. You can set goals for the year. Um, I do this. I actually always have goals off to the right for every category, what, what I want to go, which direction, and to what, what end goal for the year. I print it out in January and then discuss it with my wife, uh, which is actually a good thing to do. Different families do different things. Um, I think it's good for your wife to know where your finances are at any point within you know fairly close range. Um, at any point, I probably know just off the top of my head where we are within 5% or so. Uh, my wife probably knows within 10%. My kids probably were like 20 or 30%. They, I actually brought my own little uh, cheering section over there. Just in case nobody came, I'd have somebody to talk to, and, uh, not just be speaking to chairs. Um, so anyway, it's good to have goals, good to communicate these to your wife, to know where you are at any given point, um, and to update these things. 
So I'd suggest keeping track of your net worth in a spreadsheet. Once you've done that, you should evaluate your cash flow situation. Your cash flow margin is the difference between your income and your, uh, your expenses, as expressed in the formula there. To figure out your cash flow number, your cash flow margin, you add up all your monthly income, then add up all of your monthly expenses, and finally you subtract your total monthly expenses from your total monthly income, and that difference is your monthly cash flow margin. Like your net worth, this could be a negative number, though that's a real problem. That's, if that's the case, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we can work on these things. Uh, this formula is pretty straightforward, but if you don't know where your income is going each month, I think a lot of people are in this situation where they feel like, all right, I can, I can count my paychecks. I know what's coming in, but I just don't know where it's going every month. Like I get to the end of the month and it seems like there are more days than there is money in the bank account. Uh, I think a lot of people probably find themselves in that position. If you find yourself in that position, it might be helpful to sit down and figure out where it's gone the last two months. I mean, there's a record, unless you're paying cash for everything, even then you can figure out how much cash did I pull out. But you have a record of what you spent, your checkbook, your credit card statement, your debit card statement, things like that. Um, so start by figuring out where every dollar went last month or the last two months. Here's how this might look. I've got three brothers here, Carl, Harpo, and Groucho. They all make the same income. We're ignoring taxes. They all make 36000 a year, 3000 a month. Some of you get the reference. Uh, they all make $3,000 a month. Carl spends $3,500 a month, and so his cash flow is minus $500 a month or minus $6,000 a year. Harpo does significantly better. He's not a Marxist after all. He, um, he spends $3,000 a month and basically has nothing left over. He uh, is living paycheck to paycheck. And for now, that seems okay. However, he's going to be in trouble as soon as an unexpected expense comes along. He's going to probably have to go into debt if he doesn't already have a significant savings account. So Harpo's living paycheck to paycheck. Groucho has the same income as his brothers. Um, probably not considered a you know, huge income. Um, fairly modest income, 3000 a month. But he only spends 2500 a month, and so he has 500 a month left over. 500 with which to invest ultimately. And if he does this over time, if he invests 500 a month, 6,000 a year, he's actually going to be in a very, very different position than his other two brothers. He's going to gradually become quite well off. All right, here's a summary of this section and some action steps. Sometime in the next few weeks, sit down and figure out your net worth. All right, I'm not saying this afternoon, but sometime plan to do this. You can do this on paper, though I'd suggest using a spreadsheet that you update from time to time. If it's in Google Sheets, you can actually pull it up on your phone. You can check it, change it, whatever. Then take some time to figure out your cash flow numbers for the months of September and October using your checkbook, ledger, debit card statement if you have one, and a credit card statement. I've actually never had debit card. This is kind of funny. Um, a couple of my kids have debit cards. I've never had one, um, just for whatever reasons. Um, all right, so you figured out where you are next. You need to create goals or figure out where you want to be in the future down the road. Start with a, what seems like a simple question. What is money? Money can technically be defined as a medium of exchange or a unit of measurement, a way to keep track of accounts, or as a store of value. But for the purposes of personal finance, money is simply a tool that allows you to make choices. People speak about energy as the ability to do work. Well, money is kind of the ability to make choices, to employ something to accomplish a goal. Money is a resource that can be used to accomplish goals. It's not an end in itself. Its only value stems from what it can accomplish. So you should start really by establishing some financial priorities 
and specific goals. Here are a few potential ideas to get you started. Uh, certainly could have others and you might, some of these might not be important to you. Uh, a priority could be to give more to support your local church, hopefully. There's a good one. I think we can all agree on that. We don't say, eh, it's not for me. Uh, give more to support your local church. Become completely debt-free. Uh, pay off a student loan, perhaps, would be the uh, more precise uh, goal. Buy or pay off a house. Uh, if you have a house, you might want to pay that off. Enable your wife to be a stay-at-home wife, or if you have kids, be a stay-at-home mother. Achieve financial independence. I uh, have the little acronym there, FIRE. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with the FIRE movement, maybe you're not. It stands for Financially Independent Retired Early, um, and there are all kinds of variations on that. I would say that the first half of that doesn't necessarily go with the second half. You could pursue financial independence without the goal to retire early. Uh, some, there are actually people trying to retire in their 20s, and some succeed by leaving on like 10 or 20% of their income for five or six years, they, and then they do what they call lean fire. Anyway, we'll go, we won't go down that rabbit trail, but uh, achieving financial independence. Pursue certain lifestyle upgrades, perhaps to own a vacation home, perhaps to go on a regular vacation, whatever. You might have some goal that is legitimate. It's not a bad thing to have, perhaps. All right, top of page four. How much do you need in order to retire or become financially independent? This is probably the number one question that a lot of people have. How will I ever know if I'm there? What do I need? I'm in my 20s or 30s. How much am I going to need? Let's just assume retirement at 65. We'll just do that for simplicity. Certainly people work into their 70s um, or longer sometimes, but we'll, we'll just go with 65 for now so we have a base point. How much do you need to retire at 65? Well, uh, need is a very slippery term. There are a lot of variables to the question. For instance, things like what age do you plan to retire? If you want to retire at 55, that's going to look different than if you want to work till you're 75. Um, what kind of lifestyle do you want to have in retirement? What kind of things do you want to be able to do? Do you want to be able to visit missionaries on the mission field? Um, say visit missionaries every year. Well, that will cost some money. That You need to plan for that. Uh, whether or not you'll have other sources of income, social security, a pension, though that's not very common, especially for pastors, but perhaps you did some other job, uh, were in the military, have some kind of background that provides income. In 1994, William Bengen published a now famous article in which he proposed what has become known as the 4% rule. Bengen's goal in this article was to determine how much a person could safely withdraw each year from retirement accounts without running out of money for at least 30 years. The assumption was you retire around 65 and are going to need to have funds income until you're about 95, when nature takes its course and not too many people have financial problems after 95. Um, so how do you do this? Bengen began with assumed asset allocation of 50% stocks, 50% bonds. Then using historical data, he demonstrated that in every year since 1926, that's when the S&P was created, and that's the index he used. It wasn't the S&P 500 back then, only included about 90 stocks, varied, but um, anyway, he used the S&P as his standard. And he determined that if a person began with a first-year withdrawal of 4% of principal and then adjusted their withdrawal amount uh, each subsequent year to account for inflation, even if that person retired in the worst possible year, probably 1929, perhaps the late 60s, 1929, was followed by four years of double-digit stock market declines. Um, the 60s was right on the cusp of mass, a massive inflationary period of the 70s. Actually, the year 2000 would have been pretty lousy. The aughts, uh, the stock market just muddled along. But anyway, he looked at these different time periods, not the 2000 because he was before that, but he looked at all the others. Um, every, any given year, 
if you started and withdrew 4% and then adjusted for inflation every year after, you would have been okay. Your money would have lasted at least 30 years. In fact, the worst case scenario, it lasted 33 years in his figuring. Here's how he summarized it. Assuming a minimum requirement of 30 years of portfolio longevity, a first year withdrawal 4%, followed by inflation adjusted withdrawals in subsequent years should be safe. He actually called this 4%. He was looking for what he called a safe max number. Uh, safe max was 4%. All right, that's a little wordy. What does this mean? All right, how does this actually work out? Kind of brass tacks. What this means is if a person, say, had a million dollar portfolio, half stocks, half bonds, at the beginning of retirement, they could withdraw 40,000 the first year. Then the next year, assuming inflation of 3%, they would be able to safely withdraw 41,200. The 1,200 there is 3% of the 40,000. And then they would keep going from there. They'd be looking at the CPI. He actually figured it. You do this at the end of the year and withdraw money for the entire next year at the way he figured. And you would adjust each year. We haven't had deflationary period in American history since the teens during uh, basically World War I. Um, and so your income would go up each year. People often mess up on the inflation adjusted each year part of this calculation. So to figure out an approximate retirement number, I can't give you a number and say you need X amount. That just isn't the way life is. But to figure out an approximate number, you can begin by multiplying your desired initial retirement income by 25. The 4% gives you a, a 25 factor. So if you wanted 40,000 desired income your first year, you would actually save up a million. If you want 60,000 your first year, one and a half million. If you want 80, two million. Now it might sound, these numbers might sound large to you. Maybe, maybe not, but maybe they do. Um, <clears throat> I would suggest though that inflation is a bigger factor than we think about. I ran some numbers. The year that I was born, if you had a million dollars, you had a certain amount of purchasing power. In order to have that same amount of power today, you need to have $5.6 million. So a millionaire isn't what it used to be. Um, in fact, in years to come, multi will be the new millionaire or DECA will be the new millionaire. Um, I've told my kids for years, they're going to actually need, in order to retire comfortably, they're certainly going to have to be millionaires. Um, they're just, that's just reality. Um, unless they, I mean, you can live on social security, but if they want to plan for the future, they're certainly going to have to be up there. So if those numbers seem big, we're going to talk about how to get there. Um, it's actually not, it, it's not as undoable as it might seem. All right, so account for inflation, though, um, those income numbers, particularly if you're, say, in your 20s, income changes over time, uh, the value of that income uh, due to inflation. And so 80000 might sound like, hey, that's a lot more than I make right now, but 40 years from now, that might actually be what you want. You might also want to subtract your anticipated Social Security income or any other income you anticipate having in retirement from your desired income number. I personally view Social Security benefits that I might receive in the future as extra. I basically plan as if Social Security doesn't exist. I think that's the safe thing to do. Um, I'll never be disappointed. Be a pessimist, you'll never be disappointed, right? You can only be uh, pleasantly surprised. It's not going to disappear, um, but anyway. As I mentioned, Bengen worked with the uh, assumption of asset allocation being 50% stocks, 50% bonds, but in this and subsequent articles, he suggested that 50% stocks was the absolute minimum amount a person should have in equities and stocks at the beginning of, beginning of retirement, and that most investors would be better off with 50 to 75% in stocks, leaning closer to 75% at the point of retirement. 
and then very gradually transitioning to a slightly higher bond allocation. Basically, he suggested you start out with 60 or 70% in stocks when you retire, let's say 65. When you're 66, you move 1% over. That was what he thought was best. I think he was, I think he was onto something. I think he actually gives very good advice. Over the course of several articles, uh, Bengen proposed the retiree's asset allocation should look something like this. I've simplified this a little bit for the sake of visibility just in one little uh, formula here. Uh, but you can see there, depending on how aggressive you wish to be, some people are very conservative, don't sleep well at night, knowing the, start, uh, the stock market exists. Others are like, yeah, I can roll the dice, whatever. Um, so you can see here, if you retired at age 65, let's just take the middle one. Um, he's saying take the number 130 and subtract 65 from it. You would be 65% in stocks and the rest probably in bonds, maybe some in treasuries um, or money market type accounts. For me, actually, he would say I at 48, I'm 48. Uh, he would say even if I'm very aggressive, I should be at 92% stocks maximum. I actually don't follow this in that I'm still 100%. Um, but that's, there are all kinds of factors. You have to make your own decisions. I, uh, I've, at this point, bond yields are actually starting to look more attractive. Bonds have been a terrible place to be the last decade. Terrible place to be. I mean, treasuries were under 1%. Ten-year treasuries were below 1% um, for most of the decade. Now they're up close to 5%, and uh, corporate bonds certainly higher. Um, everything's based off 10-year treasuries. Uh, the U.S. government's 10-year treasury rate uh, impacts. It's just considered a absolutely safe investment. And so why would you take greater risk if you're not going to get greater rewards? So mortgage rates are always higher than the 10-year treasury rate, things like that. All right, some action steps, uh, summary and action steps. Sometime in the next few weeks, sit down, think about your core financial prior priorities, and then establish a few short and long-term financial goals. Now, these goals don't need to be set in concrete. In fact, I would suggest they should be flexible. Life changes, you know, you think you're going to have X number of kids and you have eight kids. Um, there are all kinds of different things that happen. You, your priorities change sometimes. You decide, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Or I do want to be able to do this. Oh, this is going to happen down the road. I didn't see this when I was 25 or 30. And now that I'm 50, um, you know, I have different priorities or even 60. So sit down, come up with your core financial priorities and some specific goals. Then figure out an approximate financial independence number or perhaps a range to aim, aim for. Hopefully the 4% there or multiply by 25 gives you some idea. You go, you know what? I want to have an income of 60000 because it's still a number of years to retirement and I, I've opted out Social Security, whatever. And so that means I probably need to get to something like $1.5 million. Um, again, that might sound big depending on where you're sitting. Uh, once you know where you are, and you decide where you want to go, you need to develop a plan. This is the route. This is figure out how to get there. And this is really the bulk of what I want to talk about. Figure out how to get to your goal or goals. Begin by establishing an emergency fund if you don't have one, all right? This is just kind of um, at the beginning. If you're familiar with Dave Ramsey's seven baby steps, this is his very first step. Ramsey suggests establishing an emergency fund of $1,000. I think that's a fine place to start. However, my experience, uh, emergencies usually cost more than $1,000. That's just reality. He came up with that number more than 20 years ago, and he's never adjusted for inflation. That's part of the issue. Um, so I would just suggest establishing an emergency fund somewhere in the two dollars to $4,000 range. Um, it might be different depending on who you are, where you live. If you live in an apartment and have a reliable car, you might be able to be toward the bottom end of that. If you, live in, you have your own house and the roof is not new, 
uh, you might want to be toward the higher end of that or saving certainly toward major expenses. I had a $3,800 car repair uh, two months ago. All right, my $1,000 emergency fund wouldn't have hacked it. Um, all right, regardless of the exact amount, if you don't have an emergency fund of some kind, an unforeseen expense may force you into debt. This emergency fund belongs in a savings account. I've mentioned stocks and bonds. This does not go in stocks or bonds. It goes in a high yield, what's usually called a high yield savings account. Can be online, that's fine. There are banks like um, Ally Bank or Capital One that offer high yield savings accounts with uh, interest above 4%. Um, those are fine places to put this. My suggestion is to begin the habit of adding to the savings account automatically every month or perhaps every, every payday until you hit an amount equal to six months worth of expenses. People say two to six months, three to six months. I actually think six months is where you should get to. Now, you can start doing other things before you get there, but I think that should be your goal is to get to having six months worth of living expenses in a savings account and to keep putting money into that. However, so don't ever turn off the spigot what's feeding this account, this bucket, so to speak. Keep the money going there automatically. But when you hit six months living expenses, you can occasionally take some of that money and put it other places into investments, paying down, say, your mortgage or whatever. Uh, but keep putting the money in there. Just make that a lifelong, honestly, until, you're, until you retire, just make that a lifelong, as long as you have income, make that lifetime automated practice. All right, top of page six. This is one of the key themes of this workshop. If you walk away with nothing else, like you get lost in the minutia of stocks, bonds, asset allocation, whatever, <coughs> get this. Spend less than you make. All right, This is the key place where people blow it. Um, you've got to spend less than you make. So establish a budget or at least get your spending under control. As I argued above, you need to know your cash flow situation. That was kind of history or your present situation. Now you need to take control of your cash flow situation. This is planning for the future. Many people dislike the idea of having a budget, but a budget can actually be very freeing. It enables you to act on your priorities and work toward your goals. If you don't have a plan, it's very hard to reach your goals. You just wander around. Um, and their goals, maybe you have some goals out there, but you don't have a way to get there. A budget can be very detailed or it can include fairly broad categories. We've never been like minutia, get into the details of, you know, spend $5 on this this month. We've never been that way. Uh, we've had a budget in a spreadsheet. We don't use it too aggressively right now, but I would suggest that the general concept is good. And we did use it uh, very carefully for probably the first 10 to 20 years we were married somewhere in there, gradually uh, we're able to move away from it somewhat. Um, just don't include a large miscellaneous spending category, all right? This can look how you want, but don't have a large miscellaneous category. Um, you want to give every dollar a job. You want to know where the money's going. Don't just, you might as well not have a budget if you have a huge, you know, $500 just disappears every month and I don't know where it goes, you know, that's just for miscellaneous. Uh, that's not going to work very well for you. As you look at your budget, be aware of the danger of subscriptions and other small recurring expenses. I hate recurring expenses. I mean, I, like with a passion, I have avoided any kind of subscription, uh, just probably more aggressively than needed at times. Auto pay is great for your mortgage. It's great for utility bills. If you have rent, it's great to put your rent on auto pay. Uh, your credit card bills, set them up to automatically pay off in full every month, certainly. Um, but auto pay is terrible when it's used for things that are not necessities. If you don't need it, it shouldn't really be put on auto pay. If it's like, yeah, that's nice, and I got talked into that, or it seemed like it'd be nice to have that streaming service, and now I have four of them, 
um, you know, and it's going on my credit card every month or coming on my debit, my checking account, whatever. Um, be aggressive here. This is a place to be very aggressive. It's way too easy to accumulate subscriptions of various sorts. Make it a little harder to pay for non-essentials by paying for them manually. I would suggest not having your credit card in a whole bunch of websites as well. Like I can jump on Amazon and spend hundreds of dollars in under 30 seconds. You know, like just boom, it's there and it'll arrive in a day or two. Um, very convenient. But the whole idea of, you know, taking time before you make a purchase uh, to think about it uh, can easily go away. So uh, just don't make it too easy to spend money and certainly avoid recurring expenses as much as possible. Maybe you've read David Bach. He's written a number of books, The Automatic Millionaire, Latte Factor, and uh, really half a dozen other books. Same is really the same principle in most of his books. Uh, he's received a lot of flack from some critics for his Latte Factor. I think his main point is correct. One of the things that derails a lot of budgets is a tendency to spend small amounts on non-essentials on a regular basis. Things like, in his case, he's talking about overpriced coffee. I know, I, I just use coffee and non-essential in the same sentence, and some of you don't think that should be the case. But uh, the reality is, uh, if you're spending money at Starbucks daily, many times a week, it, it really adds up. Here, here's, how it, here's how it works. Here's an example. If you spend six bucks a day on coffee at Starbucks, that adds up to $2,190 a year, $21,900 a decade. If instead of buying that coffee, you invested the same amount and earned a 10% return, you'd have a little over $38,000 at the end of 10 years. You might say, yes, but I wouldn't be as happy. <laughs> uh, and $38,000, is it really worth it? Coffee, you know, my coffee was worth it, all right? At the end of 20 years, you do this for 20 years, you'd have $137,000. Now you're going, that's like the price of some houses. Like, this is... 20 years worth of coffee every day at Starbucks basically have the price of a house. Um, there are multiple houses in Allen Park for sale right now for under that price. If you do this for 40 years, though, all of a sudden it jumps to over a million dollars. And you might go, how can that be? How can you go from 20 years to 40 years and it jumps from 137000 to over a million dollars? That's the power of compound interest, which is just incredible. You want it working for you, not against you. Incidentally, I'm kind of a geek on these things. Starbucks went uh, public in 1992. If the first year they were fully public, 1993, you had skipped your coffee and you put all that $6 a day into Starbucks stock, $2,190 into Starbucks stock. Today, uh, you'd have 370000 and you went right back to drinking coffee normally, 1994. You just go back, you're drinking your $6 coffee every day, every day after, um, right up to the present you'd have over $370,000 in Starbucks stock. And they'd be paying you out $8,500 a year in dividends. You could actually just pay for four coffees every single day from your dividends from Starbucks stock. Right? You might have the jitters from all the caffeine, but um, that's the, the power of time and just little amounts of money that sit somewhere earning a return over time uh, just makes a crazy difference. I'm not suggesting Starbucks coffee, that you go out and buy Starbucks stock I'm making zero stock uh, recommendations for specific stocks, if I mention some in passing. All right, beware of big expenses. Uh, too much house can be a huge drag on your budget. Um, sometimes people, there's something to be said for a starter house, all right? Most people should start with a starter house and not, you know, maybe your parents are on their second or third house, whatever, and it's at this level and you're looking for your first house, you probably shouldn't be looking for that house that your parents live in. Maybe your parents have lived in the same house all your life, and that's not relevant. But if your parents have upgraded a few times, um, 
you probably can't really afford that house. If the bank gives you a uh, pre-approval letter that says you can borrow X amount, you can afford up to X amount, do not go for that. Don't look at houses there that much. In fact, be really careful what you tell your realtor because as soon as you give them a number, that's where they're, they're aiming for that, like as their starter number. Um, you know, oh yeah, it worked. Um, as you're looking at houses, it's very easy to go, oh, it'd be nice to have another bedroom. It'd be nice to have a newer kitchen. It'd be nice to have this or that. And so sometimes people go, oh, you know, I'll spend an extra, it's worth it an extra $50,000 um, to get this. We can finance it, and uh, we're going up to our max maybe with the, what the bank says we can afford, but we're, it's worth spending the extra $50,000. After all, it's an investment, right? Well, it's going to cost you more than that extra $50,000 and the interest that accrues to it. Um, the reality is the more expensive house will cost significantly more every single year, even if you don't have a mortgage. And this is due to higher property taxes, higher insurance costs, higher utility bills, and simply the need to have more furniture to fill a bigger house. In Allen Park, if you spend an extra $50,000 on a house, there are three different tax zones in Allen Park, but basically it's going to cost you an extra $1,000 a year in property taxes. Uh, you go from $100,000 to a $150,000 house, it's gonna cost you an extra $1,000 a year. There's a lot more that goes into it, and every time you repurchase or flip, switch houses, um, the property taxes get reset and go up. They never get reset lower, it's, it's kind of, it's the way it works. So the reality is a more expensive house will cost you more every year and will be a huge drag on your budget. Page seven, here's an area that a lot of, I think, young guys and young couples get um, off base on. Too many cars or the frequent purchase of brand new cars can destroy a budget. Much like buying too much house, too many cars will drain a budget very quickly. Brand new cars cost more to register and insure and they usually lose about 20% of their value in the first year and then lose an additional 10% of their value each year during the next four years. All right, you may say, yes, I have a friend, though last year who bought a car and now it's worth more. We've been living in strange times the last few years, all right? This, things will revert to the mean here. Don't count on cars appreciating. That is not the way life has worked since the days of Henry Ford. Cars have depreciated. And generally, if you buy a brand new car and you drive it off the lot, you're going to lose close to 20% like right away. Thousands of dollars uh, will be lost on the value of that car when you drive it off the lot. So this means if you purchase a new car for $20,000, even if you pay cash, which you definitely should in most cases, I suppose you could get 0% financing or something in some eras. Not very common today, probably. Uh, but you should pay cash. That car, though, will decline value about $4,000 the first year and then another $2,000 per year over the next few years. So after 5, 000, uh, five years, that car that costs $20,000 is likely worth somewhere around $8,000. If you sell that car and start the process again, you're losing $12,000 per vehicle every five years. Um, even if you're paying cash, you finance this and things get a lot worse. You do this with two vehicles. Um, you do exactly what I described there, buy a $20,000 vehicle, pay cash for it, keep it for five years. It's, the depreciation alone on those two vehicles is gonna be $400 a month. So your net worth number, wherever that is, you know, you've got your net worth, just start by subtracting $400 every month. That's $400 that it needs to be growing just to keep at sea level, just to stay where you are because of depreciation. Paying cash for vehicles that are four to six years, it seems to be kind of a cusp right around five years where cars are no longer considered new. The blooms come off the rose, so to speak, and people will sell their cars for a lot less. 
Uh, but buying cars that are four to six years old will potentially save you several hundred thousand dollars during your lifetime. You say, several hundred thousand dollars? What? Like, we're only talking a few thousand dollars here, there, $400 a month. Well, assuming you drive for 50 or 60 years and you recycle vehicles, if you recycle vehicles every five years um, and they're new and you take the depreciation, yeah, it adds up um, due to opportunity cost, among other things. It actually adds up to hundreds of thousands of dollars over your lifetime. So be careful with your car purchases. My wife and I, we've actually gone with one vehicle. This isn't for everybody. Worked for us seven, 17 years ago. We went down to one vehicle and we've never gone back. Someday we'll go back to having two. But at times it's inconvenient, but it's actually saved us scads of money over the years. Uh, just not having to insure, register, repair, maintain uh, vehicles and taking the depreciation. All right, consumer debt. Avoid or get out of consumer debt. Now, not all debt is the same. Sometimes people just think of debt as one lump thing, like all debt is bad or whatever. Uh, consumer debt versus investment debt. Consumer debt, including credit card debt, that's a subset of consumer debt, is debt that you use to purchase things that are not investment assets. Things like food, furniture, clothes, entertainment, vacations, perhaps. Things that don't hold their value. Some of those things are good, necessary. Clothes are necessary. All right? uh, these are, food is necessary. But... If you put on a credit card and don't pay it off, it now becomes your consumer debt. It becomes a debt and you have nothing to show for it. Little to show for it. You can't turn around and sell it for what you paid for it. Investment debt is debt that's used to purchase investment assets. Things like real estate, a business, business-related assets, possibly education. Um, sometimes it's worth borrowing in order to get an education that will then enable you to uh, secure an income down the road. The real test of investment debt is whether or not the asset produces more economic benefit than the cost of borrowing. A mortgage on a primary residence would fall somewhere between these two, though I'd lean toward the investment debt, even though I don't consider my own personal residence an investment. I'm, never, I'm not going to sell it to come up with cash because you would need to use it to buy something else, presumably, unless we live on a park bench. Um, benches, lots of benches, a uh, big park. Um, all right, so a, uh, a mortgage may be investment debt, uh, probably leans that direction. So how do you get out of credit card debt or other debt, any debt, ultimately? The first step to getting out of debt is to stop borrowing. This is kind of obvious, but this is like you're in a hole. How do you get out of the hole? First step is stop digging. All right, well, this is the case with borrowing. Then there are two major approaches that you can use to get out of this debt. The snowball method or the avalanche method. Perhaps you've heard of these. Uh, these methods assume that you have multiple debts, all right? that you have several different debts that need to be paid off, which is the case for many people. All right, The snowball method. Dave Ramsey teaches that the best way to get out of debt is what he calls a snowball method. With this method, you make the minimum payment on each debt, and then you pay extra on the debt with the smallest balance, regardless of interest rates. You ignore those. Once the smallest balance is paid off, you apply whatever you were paying on the smallest debt that you've now paid off to the next smallest balance. And you keep doing this until all your debts are paid off. As an aside, Ron Blue was actually teaching this back in the 1980s. He just didn't have the gimmicky name of Snowball, uh, or useful name, memorable name, Snowball. So uh, this is not new to Ramsey. Plenty of people have taught this. The other main method is called the avalanche method. Um, this is the other approach to paying off multiple debts. You, take the, you make the minimum payment on each debt, and then you pay extra on the debt with the highest interest rate, regardless of balance size. Once you pay off the debt with the highest interest rate, you move on to the debt with the next highest interest rate. Again, you keep doing this until all of your debts are paid off. So how would these two different methods look in the case I have laid out here in the notes? Um, 
All right, we have this guy, let's call him Chico Marks. Um, Chico, um, he has four different loans. Um, you can see there the different amounts, the different interest rates, and the different minimum payments. Well, with a snowball method, uh, he, he's read Dave Ramsey. He would go one, two, three, four. So he would go for the $500 balance first, even though that actually has the lowest interest rate. He would then move on to debt number two, though that's one of the middling interest rates, then debt number three, and then finally the largest amount. The avalanche method would look at this differently. It would focus on debt number three. So you're paying minimum amount on each debt, but then it, it would begin with debt number three, paying extra on that every month because it's got the 18% interest rate. That's a credit card or whatever. Then it would move on to debt number two with a 12% interest, then debt number four, and would actually only get back to debt number one, try to knock that off very last. Um, kind of created, I've massaged the numbers to make it so that these are different. Sometimes they might actually work in the same order, depending on how the interest rates and balances work out. All other things being equal, the debt avalanche does lead to paying less in interest and getting out of debt sooner. It's actually mathematically the better way to go. The, greater, uh, the difference between the interest rates on the various loans, the more the debt avalanche helps you save in interest. However, the debt snowball method has the advantage of bringing faster psychological rewards as the borrower sees individual debts paid off sooner. People need this. Uh, sometimes it, it's just mathematically the avalanche method is superior, but the snowball method is often better in practice, especially for people who feel like they'll never get out of debt. To focus on the smallest one, pay it off, actually works for many people better, even though mathematically the avalanche method makes more sense. But if you can knock off that $500 debt, all of a sudden you feel like, oh, now I have the extra I was putting on that, my minimum, my $50 a month minimum payment, plus the extra $100 a month I was putting on it to pay it off. Now I've got $150 I could put on the next one. And you feel like you're making progress. It does actually work for a lot of people. I'm not making a strong recommendation either way on these. Uh, the avalanche is honestly better, uh, but the snowball works better for a lot of people. In reality, unless there's a huge difference between the interest rates on the various loans or you have large loans, there often isn't a huge difference between the financial results of using these methods. They're actually calculators. You can punch in, uh, if you Google snowball versus avalanche method calculator, you can punch in debts and figure out the difference, how fast, how, you know, you say how much you're willing to overpay and uh, it'll tell you how much you would save by doing one, doing the avalanche. The key, though, is to stop borrowing, pick one of these methods, and then stick to it. Automatically pay every month, overpay every single month, and these things will go away over time. All right, I mentioned Dave Ramsey. A uh, word here about credit scores. In my opinion, Dave Ramsey gives some less than optimal advice in this area. Ramsey argues that people should pay off all their debt and then let their credit score dwindle until it's completely extinct. Go away. There's a graphic from his website. He uh, includes this in his books and on his website that he boasts about, he claims he doesn't have a credit score. He does, but uh, he claims he doesn't have a credit score. Um, while Ramsey is correct that your credit score does not re reveal anything about your net worth, this over here, your credit score could be 600, it could be 800. It doesn't tell you where this is. He's wrong in implying that your credit score is unimportant. Here's a few reasons why I think Dave Ramsey is wrong on this issue. Most auto and homeowners insurance companies check an applicant's credit-based insurance score, which is based on your credit score, before quoting a premium to new customers. And the difference can be quite significant. Now, this is mostly for new customers. You call up whatever State Farm Insurance and you say, hey, I want this kind of car insurance. They're going to pull your credit score, uh, well, your credit-based insurance score, which is based on your credit score. 
and the difference will be quite significant. In most states, actually 47 states, including Michigan, uh, drivers with credit and good standing generally pay much less for car insurance than drivers with poor credit history. According to 2023 rate data from Quadrant Information Services, drivers with excellent credit pay an average of $17.64 per year for full coverage car insurance. In comparison, drivers who fall into the poor credit credit category pay an average of $3,479 per year for the same coverage, an average of 97% more. Does it make a difference? It makes a difference. All right, it's actually more on a house. Similarly, as well from Bankrate, homeowners with poor credit pay an average of 170% more for home insurance than homeowners with excellent credit. It matters. All right, they pull your credit. Um, The option to not have a credit score or to not care about your credit score is really the wrong way to go. Many landlords also require minimum credit score, myself included, actually. Um, I've turned people down. All right. Uh, st- <laughs> I've turned people down. I, actually, one time I remember very clearly this young girl didn't have a credit score yet. We turned her down. We had like 100 people interested in the house. I just wasn't going to take the risk. We have a minimum credit score. She didn't meet it because she didn't have a credit score. She tried to explain and all this, but we just we turned it down. Um, and Really, anybody who's being care- landlords who are being careful are going to require a certain credit score in order to approve you for a lease. If you ever want to use leverage for investment purposes, you'll pay higher interest if you have an established excellent credit. If you want to buy a house down the road, you don't have a house, but you want to buy one, um, your credit score is going to matter a lot. Yeah. It's an anecdotal 2008, when, of course, different times when yeah. we had all the financial crisis. So the house we currently got 15 years ago, yep. we came parsonage came to buy the house 50 percent down to the house we almost didn't get it wow. because yep. we didn't have credit cards before. yeah we just had that yeah. philosophy so we learned yep. real quick that you actually kids, you get credit cards and you pay them off you get a credit rating okay so, so there's no way we're gonna get this house we almost didn't get it yeah so uh tip for parents you can actually put your kids on your credit cards as authorized users but don't give them the credit card all right so actually all of my uh, carrie i don't think you have one yet but um Four, at least four of my kids are on our credit cards, uh, though they don't, the credit cards are in the safe, literally. Uh, they've never been removed from the paper, but they have credit scores. They're building credit because they are on a credit card that we've had for 20 years or so. Um, and so they actually have credit scores, that they have credit histories that predate their births in some cases. <laughs> but that's the, the reality of how it works. It shows that they have had credit cards or they are on a credit card with a 20 year history of never making a late payment and such and such a balance limit and all that accrues to their credit score. Uh, so that is a good thing to do, uh, perhaps even to get one in their own name in time um, as soon as they're able to, and then maybe not use it. Uh, certainly teach them to use it if you're going to. So you should seek to build and maintain an excellent credit score even if you rarely use credit. You can maintain an excellent credit score without ever paying a single penny in interest. In fact, um, if your house is paid off, if you don't have uh, investment loans or such, you really could do that quite simply. Use a credit card and pay it off automatically every month. You never pay any interest, but you maintain your credit score. All right, another way to uh, make your budget work, consider getting a side hustle. This was a recommendation from a student. Um, one of the key, I, I threw around some of these ideas with students and someone made this recommendation to me. One of the key ideas of this workshop is that you need to spend less than you make. So far I mentioned the spend less part, but there's another side to this equation, namely the make more. Um, 
how much you make. You may find it helpful or even necessary to get a second job or a side hustle in order to keep your expenses less than your income. Ideas include selling things on eBay. I have a friend who buys stuff at Goodwill, sells it clothes, actually, on eBay. Uh, flipping stuff on Facebook Marketplace. I know people who do this. They find stuff and fix it up and resell it. Great. Um, tutoring or piano lessons or something of that sort. Driving for Uber, Lyft, or DoorDash or leveraging some knowledge or skill that you have. The sky's kind of the limit here. Be creative. There, if you need to raise your income, figure out a way to do it. Um, we've, yeah. I've had various little side hustles for, um, you want multiple streams of income. It's good to have multiple streams of income. Once your budget is under control and consumer debts are paid off and you have some cash flow margin, then you should invest some of your positive cash flow in assets that tend to appreciate and produce more cash flow. This becomes a cyclical thing. Start by talking about assets, though. Beware of false assets. Not everything that might appear on the asset side of a balance sheet is actually an asset for investment purposes. You can go broke buying assets that aren't good investments. Let's take a little quiz here. I won't uh, ask you. Let's just think through these issues here, these various potential assets. Are these really investment assets or not? I have five different categories they could fall into. Some may fall into more than one. Um, so primary residence, primary residence. Well, real estate tends to appreciate over time and you need a place to live, but it doesn't actually put money in your pocket. It might save you money, I suppose, versus some other alternative, but it doesn't save you money. It's probably a B. Tends to appreciate, doesn't produce positive cash flow. You're not going to live off your primary residence. You're not, it's not producing income. Clothing and jewelry. This is an easy one. Uh, this is a D. This is, uh, does not tend to appreciate or produce positive cash flow. It depreciates, never puts money in your pocket. How about a checking account? Necessary. Um, but this is probably a D as well. Does not tend to appreciate. Um, you might get a little bit of interest, uh, but doesn't really produce positive cash flow. You're probably getting pennies on a checking account. Savings account. We'll give that one a C. Move it up the uh, chain a little bit uh, because the interest rate is better. Now you can pretty easily get 4% on a savings account. So we'll say it produces positive cash flow, but does not tend to appreciate. Vacant land, that's probably a B. Tends to appreciate, but doesn't produce positive cash flow, unless you're renting it out to a farmer or something. I've known people who have done that kind of thing, great. Um, so it actually will cost you money every year. If you just hang on to vacant land, you're paying property taxes on it at very least. Right, how about an S&P index fund or an ETF? That would be an A. Tends to appreciate over time. The stock market, uh, S&P in particular, has averaged somewhere between 10 to 11% over the last 100 years. Um, so tends to appreciate um, and produces cash flow. Uh, yield on the S&P right now is somewhere around 1.6%. So it produces cash flow. Not a ton, but some. All right, cryptocurrency. All right, this is one. I have a little hobby horse here. I am not a fan of cryptocurrency. All right, so no offense if you've got Money in Bitcoin, that's fine. Um, it, it's not really currency um, because it doesn't have a Federal Reserve Bank backing it, trying to maintain its value. Uh, I won't go down this rabbit hole much, but it's, it's not really a currency. It can be traded, but you're um, kind of betting on its value relative to the U.S. dollar. It's like trading Japanese yen or British pounds. Um, it doesn't produce anything. You can, you can go online and tr trade currency trade U.S. dollars for British pounds. Um, people do this as an investment strategy of sort, of sort. However, the British pounds don't produce income. They don't make money. 
you're hoping that the ratio changes in your favor. It's kind of a 50-50 thing. You may be educated and you may have a way to figure that out, but crypto is pretty much the same way. I would give it a D. Doesn't tend to appreciate. If you bought Bitcoin, say, back when it was above 60,000 and now it's sitting at 28,000 a coin, it hasn't appreciated for you. All right, over time, from the start, it has appreciated, but there's really no reason for it to appreciate. In fact, governments could outlaw it as some have. All right, single family rental. Uh, it's real estate, so it tends to appreciate in general, not always, not every year, but tends to over time. Um, and it produces cash flow if done properly. Uh, 2024 Ford Mustang, dark horse Mustang. I like, I like the Shelbys uh, from the past, uh, but there's a dark horse coming out this next year. Uh, admittedly, I have to confess, this is a D. Doesn't tend to appreciate. In fact, it certainly will depreciate and it doesn't produce positive cash flow. It will cost money to insure that thing. Uh, fun as it might be. All right, 100 shares of Ford stock. All right, this is kind of a weird one because the automotive industry is cyclical, uh, not nearly as fun uh, as having a, a Mustang. But uh, time, yeah, I'm running out of time. Anyway, we'll move on. Uh, stock, uh, vacation home, gold. All right, let me mention precious metals. Uh, gold doesn't tend to appreciate either. All right, sometimes when there's trouble in the world, people want to flee to gold. The price of gold when I was five years old was higher than it is today. So it has not, actually, it's lower now by several hundred dollars an ounce than it was when I was five years old. So if I had, as an entrepreneurial five-year-old, put money into gold, I'd be in bad shape. Um, well, we'll keep moving here. All right, understand different kinds of investments. Page 11. <clears throat> These are kinds of investments, not accounts. Stocks. Stocks are a means of securing part ownership in a business. That's a key thing to understand. Sometimes people think, oh, I'm buying stocks, I'm trading stocks. No, actually, you're buying, buying or trading part ownership in a business. Assuming the business is profitable, the value of a stock tends to increase over time. Many companies also pay dividends to their shareholders. Uh, something like 4.3 billion shares of Coca-Cola outstanding right now. You can go buy one share and you own one 4.3 billionth of the company. Um, and you get the little $1.80 something dividend a year for that share. Uh, so stocks. Bonds are a means of lending money to businesses or to government entities, for usually for a set period of time. If held to maturity, the value of a bond is usually known. If sold before maturity, the market value of a bond is likely to have changed due to fluctuations in the credit market, among other factors. Basically, when interest rates go up, the value of bonds tends to go down, uh, existing bonds, as new bonds are issued with higher interest rates and vice versa. Um, so now interest rates have come up and bonds that were sold three years ago are worth quite a bit less. Mutual funds and ETFs. This is where I think most people should probably be. Mutual funds are a way for people to invest in a diversified basket of stocks or bonds. Most investors will be best served by investing mainly in low-cost index funds or index ETFs that track either the S&P 500 or the total U.S. stock market. I really think investing in a low-cost index fund is the way to go for most people. This is where the bulk of your retirement, especially if you're younger, um, this is probably where you should be putting it. You can see there, Warren Buffett agrees with me. He's, he's been listening. Um, you can see there a chart explaining some of the reasons for that. Uh, read John Bogle. John Bogle's the guy to read on index funds. There are other sources, but um, if you do decide to invest in actively managed mutual funds, avoid the trap of chasing yesterday's winners. All right, Kiplinger's Money Magazine will show you, you know, the top five small cap 
mutual funds, mid cap, large cap, all these different sectors um, or cap, cap levels. Um, they'll tell you what was best last year. Yesterday's wares are usually next year's duds, all right? They usually overinvested in a particular sector that appreciated a lot that year, and now they're holding overpriced assets, and usually they, they do not do as well the next year or in the coming years. I recommend index funds, equity index funds, and then bond index funds for that. Page 12. We are running out of time. Real estate and REITs. Direct ownership of real estate is generally not a passive investment. Many houses don't make good rental homes. Uh, people sometimes... Uh, just don't understand what's involved. Most houses should not become rental homes. Um, there's a lot to be said there. However, if done carefully, real estate investing can be very profitable. Commercial real estate can be a minefield, generally requires a fairly large investment. Most individual investors are probably not there. Um, the balloon payments and such can really cause problems. All kinds of commercial real estate is going to get in trouble here in the coming years as interest rates have gone up in the neighborhood of 5% and their balloons come due and they have to refinance. All right. REITs are somewhat similar to mutual funds in that they're a way for you to invest in a basket of investment properties, a way to inv invest in a bunch of real estate at once. These REITs, uh, real estate investment trusts, are required to pay out 90% of their taxable income to their share shareholders. Um, we won't go further there. Uh, insurance and annuities. Basically, the short thing is I don't think you should mix insurance and investments. I don't think you should go to your insurance agent looking for investment advice or to buy investments. That's the short answer on that. All right, understand different kinds of vehicle uh, investment vehicles or account types. This is important. All right, 401ks or 403bs, essentially the same, though offered by different kinds of companies. 401ks, for-profit, 403bs, churches, and other nonprofits. They work the same for tax purposes. Contributions are not taxed as income. Use a little illustration here. This is our bucket, our account type. Um, this is a bucket for holding investments. Here's the investment. It goes into an account type. You may have different buckets, and you can put different kinds of investments in them, multiple investments in one bucket, one account type. Um, so a 401k or 403b, the year you put it in, the year the money goes in, you get a tax write-off. That money avoids, <clears throat> you don't have to pay taxes on the money as it goes in, that income. <clears throat> However, when you take it out down the road in retirement, you do pay taxes on all of it. That is the serious downside to 403Bs and 401Ks. If you happen to have matching, your wife has matching of a 401K program, max that puppy out. That is the best investment you'll ever make once you adjust for risk. Um, if you have 100% matching, do it. Traditional IRAs, uh, they're similar to 401Ks and 403Bs in terms of taxes, except that they are not sponsored by an employer. They're individual retirement accounts. They also have income limits, uh, which 401ks do not have, and then they have lower contribution limits. The contribution limits on our 401k are 20500 for you, uh, unless you're above a certain age. Uh, traditional IRA or Roth IRA, it's currently 6500 Again, unless you're older, then maybe 7500 if you're 50 or older. Traditional IRA, again, you avoid tax. You do not pay tax on the money that goes in, but when you pull the money out, you do pay tax on all of it. Roth IRAs, I think, are good for a lot of people. Um, this is actually my favorite bucket. These are taxed differently from traditional IRAs. When you put the money in, there's no benefit. The money just goes in. When you pull it out, you pay zero taxes. Assuming you pull it out correctly, you pay zero in taxes. That is your income, and you don't have to think about taxes, really. 
Uh, with a traditional IRA, you deduct your contribution for your taxable income, then withdrawals are taxed. With a Roth, your contributions are not deductible, but qualified withdrawals are completely tax-free. That can actually be a good temporary place as well. There are ways to get at Roth IRA money um, prior to retirement, prior to 59 and a half. They, 59 and a half is kind of the turning point for Roth IRA, but you can't. There are ways to get to that money without paying penalties, uh, at least the contributions. Uh, brokerage or non-retirement investment accounts. Uh, let's just skip over this just to say that um, you can have an investment account where you hold a mutual fund or whatever that's not a retirement account. Number four there on page 13, invest little by little automatically. By far the best way to save and to invest is to do so automatically rather than occasionally or when you feel like it or when I have extra money. When people invest, when they have extra money, they kind of never have extra money, or almost never. And you just go months or years without investing anything and that's that's the real problem. Um, dollar cost averaging, you know what? You're welcome to read that, but basically by putting the same dollar amount in on a regular basis, you actually can end up buying something at an average price that's lower than the average price of that item during the time period. Look at the math, the chart. We don't have time to talk about it. All right, what about a couple different issues? Credit cards, quickly. If you use a credit card, which I think is a fine thing to do, if you can control it, set it up to automatically pay it off in full every time. If you can't do that, cut it up. Honestly, plastic surgery here, like cut the thing in half, don't use it. Um, period, exclamation point. Uh, this is a non-negotiable. Mortgages, I'm gonna suggest that you always overpay on your mortgage by at least a little. Um, now you may have a mortgage at 3% and you go, ah, it's not worth it. Um, maybe. Round it up a little. Make the math easier in your checkbook, right? Um, if nothing else. If you look at the numbers here, if you overpay, I gave an example here. If you borrowed $120,000 to buy a $150,000 house with a 30-year traditional mortgage, you were paying 7% interest. Now the rates are close to 8%. If you have good credit, your minimum monthly payment would be uh, $798 principal and interest every month for uh, 30 years. If you make only the minimum payment, about $98 goes toward the principal, 700 of that is interest, just stays with the bank. What would happen though if you paid an extra $98? You'd actually knock an entire other month off your mortgage, off the end of it. Your mortgage would end a month earlier if you pay $98. If you paid $196 extra, roughly, you would knock uh, two months off the end of your mortgage. This adds up really fast. Um, you can read some of the numbers there and see what happens if you were to round that up to 900 a month. Knocks eight and a half years off your mortgage. Pay increases, I just say be careful and don't absorb those. Use them to put yourself in a better position down the road. Social securities, um, I don't like the system. However, I don't recommend that people opt out. I know some do. Uh, many friends and others have opted out. And um, I would just say if you do that, if you have done that, um, you need a larger life insurance policy, need to be putting more away for retirement, and you might want to find a way to get your 40 quarters in another way, using other income. All right, life insurance, I'm going to recommend term life insurance. Again, I don't like to mix insurance and investing like whole life or universal policies tend to do. Um, I would recommend term life insurance. If you have kids, you definitely, you probably need it. Um, though over time, you should try to self-insure eventually. Parsonages and housing allowance. Some of you even mentioned you have parsonage. Um, if you have a parsonage, you need to be investing more. 
because you're not going to benefit from the appreciation of a primary residence and the amortization of your mortgage. So you need to be putting more money away. Having a designated housing allowance and buying your own house is usually a better situation for a pastor. So if you are in the position where you have a choice, I would opt for the housing allowance. Other considerations when going to a new ministry, this is something that two different students mentioned to me. When going to a new ministry, be aware that the church may be treating you as a contractor or as self-employed for tax purposes and therefore not withholding money from your paycheck, taxes from your paycheck. And so in the case of a couple of these guys, it came tax time and all of a sudden they owed thousands of dollars they had no idea they were going to owe because they had been treated as self-employed and they hadn't been putting money away every three months. Now they make payments every three months. Um, just be aware of that. All right, conclusion, figure out where you are, figure out where you wanna go, figure out the ways to get there. I've offered some suggestions. Um, Big idea though, you must spend less than you make, invest the difference in assets that tend to appreciate and produce cash flow. I do have some book recommendations there. I actually continued the discussion, the annotation, but we have run out of time.